Hello, this is Jeff Fargin from High Adventure Podcast. I know that I'm very late for the next episode of Apples to Alcatraz, but I promise you it's coming soon. But I wanted to drop this special episode of our show, Mark Hummel's Harmonica Party. In this episode, Mark sits down with legendary drummer Wes Starr to talk about his career that started in Rome, Georgia, and has taken him all over the world. Wes's resume includes playing with Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimmy Page, Jimmy Buffett, Delbert McClinton, Hal Ketchum, Blaze Foley, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Bob Dylan, Kim Wilson, Joe Ely, Omar and the Howlers, Asleep at the Wheel, Anson Funderburk, Jimmy Vaughn, and our own Mark Hummel, and believe it or not, Tiny Tim. We hope you enjoy this episode, and please subscribe to this podcast and to our YouTube channel, where you can watch the video versions of all our episodes. So welcome, everyone. Uh, My name is Mark Hummel. This is Mark Hummel's Harmonica Party, and we are brought to you by our sponsors, Electrify Records, Seidel Harmonicas, and Mountaintop Records. And uh, the cut you just heard was off an album called The Hustle Is Really On that I did for Electrify Records, and it features uh, a, a, a number of lo- great local musicians like Kid Anderson and June Core and Sid Morris, but it also features um, the Golden State Lone Star Review, which West Star and I uh, were both a part of, along with uh, uh, Anson Funderburg and Little Charlie Beatty and R.W. Grigsby. And uh, so we're going to be talking to Wes, who has moved from Texas to California. And so we're going to just be talking about Wes's history because he's really one of the premier drummers out of uh, Texas who has played with just everybody on the scene. Uh, he originally is from Rome, Georgia, as R.W. Grigsby, uh, our bass player, is from. And they grew up playing together as teenagers in high school, correct? That's right. Yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about your history growing up in Rome, Georgia, because your dad was a, was a radio engineer? Uh, dad was a radio engineer at uh, <clears throat> one of the... Uh, most powerful radio stations in the southeast. They were a 50,000 watt station, a WRGA from Rome, Georgia. And uh, <clears throat> that was real, I had a great uh, childhood and my dad was a, a really well-respected man and I had three brothers and they all became engineers and uh, I was kind of the black sheep. Uh, I did uh, my dad had started as all rock and rollers. That's right. <laughs> you know, I, I did. Uh, my father didn't. By the time I came along, he didn't insist that I go into that. But I did go to a vocational school and junior college and got a little two-year certificate. So I had some knowledge, just about enough to get me in trouble. And uh, you know, I, I acted like I knew stuff, but it, sometimes I didn't. It is. A young as a kid and then early in my uh, like 12 13 14 I would go to the radio station and out to the transmitter but at the station they had a lot of music uh, because we were on the train line between Chattanooga and Atlanta so for big bands and the Chitlin circuit bands a lot of them they had a layover a day off they would stay at the hotel across from the station the Forest Hotel and uh, which had uh, conveniently had a billiard hall in the basement. And a couple of my memories were I had to go down to see the uh, Sammy Kay Orchestra do a broadcast. Wow. And when I was a kid, 
And the only thing I really didn't like going down the broadcast, which as I got a little older, I, I wouldn't go anymore, which is kind of ignorant on my part, so, is my dad always made me wear a suit. Ah. But the cool thing, uh, with Sammy Kay's band, it was about half uh, Afro-American and half white guys and uh, from the Northeast. And after they did their, their set, uh, they all went back to the hotel, and my dad was kind of a world-class snooker player. Huh. So I got to hang out with these guys, and they were smoking cigars and talking the lingo, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So right. that kind of planted a seed. Yeah. And then having a brother five years older than me, and we had a, a big basement in our house, so that's where the bands practiced. My brother was an up-and-coming guitar player, and the bands that he were in when I was uh, a kid up till like 14, 15, they were pretty popular bands and they always rehearsed in our house. And I would sit up on the steps leading from the main floor of the house down to the basement and listen to them. And when they'd take a break to go to the store, or go out back, smoke cigarettes, I'd go down and play on the drums. And that's kind of how, how it started for me. So you kind of had some, some training and in, in, in insight into... Right. Right. Bands and musicians and all that. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. you know, and that's how kind of how I met uh, Richard and, and Ronnie Gray. We were the, the nucleus of, of the band mm -hmm. uh, we started. And Ronnie's brother played in my brother's band. So that's how it all connected. And then uh, they needed a drummer. So uh, Frank, Frank, Ronnie's brother, had told me about they, that his brother needed a drummer. So I didn't even have a drum set. So hmm. I borrowed drums from the, the school, wow. marching drums, and put together a <laughs> drum set and borrowed some stuff from my, my uh, brother's uh, drummer in his band, Leslie, and I met him at the Rome Teen Center, and no practice or nothing, and we just played with, wow. you know, Born to be Wild and That's great. whatever was popular <laughs> at the time. And... Uh, you know, people ask me about why do you play the way I play because I play right-handed set left-handed because literally the way that happened was when I set up the drums, I didn't know what I was doing, and I put the big symbol, the right symbol, on my left. Hmm. So about six months down the road, my brother's drummer, Leslie, saw me play. said, hey, you're doing it all wrong. You got the symbol on the wrong side. <laughs> and by then, I... I'd already started <laughs> you already were, developing. You were already there, yeah, so, right. So that's the reason I play like that, because there's not many people, as you know, that play right-handed right set, left-handed. So yeah. it's unique. Now, the other thing that everyone always comments on is the way you hold your stick right. because of your accident. Right. There's, you know, there's, there's a traditional where you hold in your left hand a stick across this way right. and like this. And then there's match grip, where you hold them both like that. And then you have the claw grip, where I hold mine like this. <laughs> and people, every show, will ask me about it. And if I don't want to tell them the story, I'll just go, uh, table saw. Because <laughs> I cut my thumb off. So that's how that came about. So I had to adapt. Yeah. Because it's still, you know, when I hit it, it just goes zing, zing. So, wow. And, and, on, and it changed my style, I think, in a lot of ways. For the first few years, it was really hard. I had I had to kind of reinvent myself in a lot of woodshedding just to go around the drums without my sticks flying everywhere, holding it like that, and doing rolls. And, and so I had to simplify things, but also it made me play things differently. And through time, it, it's just kind of made 
kind of, you know, I have my own sound. Yeah, you I definitely do. It's you a definitely do. A little different than a lot of guys. Yeah. Now, I met you through my brother because my brother worked with your wife at the time. That's right. In Austin. My brother was living in Pflugerville, mm -hmm. and you'd moved, well, you started in Georgia, you moved UNRW Richard. Grigsby, moved out to California, Santa Barbara, around right. the same time? He came out a year after me. Me and Ronnie, our singer, moved oh, out okay. together. All right. And then Ronnie, and then Richard came out because he had a child. You know, his right. child was That's born right. when he That's was 15. Right. His so daughter, he, yeah. He had right. responsibilities. He had to do some growing up. But they came out about a year later, and uh, then I moved to Texas. And then it was a few years later before Richard came out there. Right. So he followed you from from, Cal from Santa Barbara to Texas, yeah. from Georgia much, to California, California. <laughs> how much how much longer was it before he moved out? I want to say it was about uh, four or five years. Okay, and now did you guys work? Did you work in bands in Santa Barbara together? Yes, we did. You did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then when when he came out to. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about all this is it's a very incestuous world of musicians. Absolutely. And that all these musicians that we're going to be talking about, so many of them knew each other or know each other. And so you have this constant kind of movement, people from bands to bands, and you've played with so many people in Texas, yeah. practically the gamut of every... You know, especially in country and blues, I would say. Yeah, I was, yeah. you know, there were a couple guys in Austin, and we got uh, drummers that we were kind of known as the roots drummers. That's right. the way we were looked at. So, uh, of course, I went out there to play blues. And then when I started having kids and got off the road, then I got with all the songwriters. And there was just a couple of us that were kind of considered well, we could do that. You know, we mm -hmm. were rootsy drummers. Yeah. So you, George Raines? Uh, well, the blues drummers were, you know, like Mike Buck, George Raines. Um, um, would Frosty Frost, be in there? Yeah, Frosty yeah. would be in there. And Frosty did a lot of the session stuff with the songwriters. George pretty much stayed to the rock and the blues stuff mainly. Right. And, uh, you know, he... And George played with uh, with Boz, too. Yeah, right? yes, he, he played did. with Boz Keg, yeah. In the original band. Yeah. In California. So, um, okay, so let, let me try, I'm trying to get a handle on this because it really is everywhere in a sense of, of Austin and, and what happened there. The first guy you got with would be Omar, correct? Right, and that was through Kim Wilson. That was through Kim. Kim. So did you know Kim in Santa Barbara? I, Kim had already moved up to Minneapolis and had just moved down to Austin, but he was coming back and forth to Santa Barbara because his folks were there. Right. And whenever he came back, he'd always play. So I actually had met him after he had moved, but I met him in Santa Barbara. Right. Him and Nick Conley. And, uh, you know, he kept telling her, you need, to, you need to come out to Austin. You need to Interesting. come out to Austin. And yeah. he told me that... Uh, friend of his was going to be looking for a drummer, and that's what got me out there. So I flew out there. and came So he hooked you up with Omar? Yes. He, wow. I flew out there, and, uh, you know, he picked me up at the airport. Um, it was my birthday, and the first thing, music I saw was we went to the Soap Creek Saloon, and there was a triple threat review with Stevie Vaughn, W.C. Clark, Lou Ann, right. and uh, Chris on drums. 
and I sat in with them. That was my introduction to Austin. I liked, That's crazy. And I liked it. <laughs> yeah, I, rem I remember uh, during those days, that must have been, would that be mid-70s? That, that was 79. 79, yeah. okay. Because I remember I had actually really considered moving to Austin around that time. Well, I even started selling Kim my record collection and regretted it. Well, that was that was the time to be there. Yeah, it really it was. It really was. Yeah. You know, because, uh, you know, when I, and then, you know, I did my audition with Omar and I found a house. And, and so I had a month period to get my stuff together in California and then me and my first wife move out there. Right. So uh, it, it was, nobody had a, uh, was on a major label or, or a label, really. Yeah. Uh, so we were kind of all in the same boat together. And the Cobras, Omar, Stevie, uh, Christopher Cross, we all had the same agency, so we hmm. all did these six-week tours together. Interesting. And, yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, the interesting thing about with, uh, this would be a good time for me to kind of interject um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, is there was a real love and hate relationship with him with club owners and fans alike because club owners always wanted him to turn down. Right. I'd always heard and, that. And when we yeah. would be on tour in, in order for, if there were two or three bands, if it's like, say, Steve and just Omar, sometimes for us to get paid, we would have to go back on stage and finish Stevie's set for us to get paid. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. I remember, you know, I was talking <laughs> to Junior Watson recently, and he told me that he had a cassette that Stevie had given him. Mm -hmm to try to get in gigs in California. And I think he still had like the letter or something that right. that Stevie had given him. And he said Stevie didn't speak to him after that because he never got him any gigs. Ah, well, I understand that. <laughs> I think he tried, but he just didn't come up with anything. Yeah, so I joined Omar and I was with him uh, about three and a half years, did his first record with him, uh, Big Leg Beat, uh, which was, Pretty much my first real time in the studio. The album holds up real well. We had a horn section come in, uh, but I learned a lot from doing that session. Uh, the first record I ever did was in Rome with Richard on bass, a little mm -hmm. 45. It's a, a little Christian record, and it kind of got my right my first time I heard myself on drums. Actually, the first time I heard myself on drums, this is a, I have to interject this. I lived on Booz Mountain Road in Silver Creek, Georgia, outside of Rome. And my parents went down to South Georgia to, to visit my dad's mom uh, for the day. And so I had the guys come over, band we were playing in, and we recorded the first time at my house in my parents' den. And then all the guys left and it wasn't two hours later, a tornado hit our house, blew oh, the yeah, roof yeah, off, yeah, the, yeah, off yeah. the house. I remember hearing about this. And yeah. that should have been a sign not to ever get in the music business. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what happened. Right. Yeah. I remember hearing that story. Yeah. So, you know, and yeah. then, of course, uh, I have the earthquake tape from Santa Barbara when we were playing at the gallery when the earthquake wow. hit. All, all the alarms were going off because it was Sunday afternoon. Incredible. So I have these interesting tapes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were just telling me on the way here about, <laughs> about, how, about the fires in Santa Barbara. You said there was the one fire where you watched the city burn. Yeah, we were in Carpentry and sat on the roof. And then what was the second and, and th thing? Then it was there was the, the mudslides. Mudslides afterwards, right. and then they had the earthquake that was the epicenter. It was only a mile off the coast. So that's why it did so much damage. 
and it happened on a Sunday, so, it, you know, and I lived right off State Street, and I was playing at this gallery at, that afternoon, but every glass shattered in every building on State Jesus. Street, so all the alarms were going off, so yeah. it's this real eerie kind of, yeah. you know, it shook eerie. the building back and forth. And, 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 and Richard lasted a lot longer there, I guess. Yes, he yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. He, he stuck around there. Right. So, uh, so Omar was the first group you were with in, in Austin, and then uh, I think you said uh, uh, the wheel was no, it? No, Marsha. Oh, Marsha was before the wheel. No, yeah, Marsha was before. Okay, the wheel. so Marsha Ball, who's very a very popular artist out of Austin now, and you're with her for I think you said two years. Yeah, a couple of years, yeah. and it was uh, really you know it was really great. The the first three or four bands, I learned so much musically as a drummer, and and then just being with the bands I was with and playing the the different parts of country. Because like with Omar, we played the Deep South a lot. Now we right. did do a lot of East Coast runs. Well, that's back when you could stay in one state, and play seven gigs in a week, right. in seven different right. towns. You know, right. back in those days. But yeah. uh, with Marsha, we went to Louisiana a lot which you're talking about, I joined her in 82. So, I mean, New Orleans just had tons of clubs. There was Jimmy's, Tipitina's, right, right, right. I mean, all the yep. great clubs. And also between Omar and Marsha, both of them went to Chicago a lot. So in the late 70s, early 80s, there was just, what a scene up there. A lot of, yeah, yeah big yeah. big scene of blues. Right, yeah. and I got yeah. to see a lot of the guys at, before they passed, or I would go see them and, because I'd met them at Antones. Right. We'll I was going to say, then, then then you got on top of that, you got Antones in the early 80s. Yep. And that was when it was really, really going strong. It, it was. It was a, and and when did you start working with Blacktop? Was that with Anson or previous to Anson? Anson Funderburg were talking. Yeah, and Anson, uh, no, my stuff started when we did a, a that trisexual soul champ record, okay which that's the first blacktop record i did and then then because and that's of with that, mark kazanoff on sax group fats jackson, fats jackson and, and then who was sill austin sill austin yeah sill austin yeah i had the big yeah. million seller uh, was a birthday party or something like that in the 50s the first sax. i came and saw you guys at tipitina's one night yeah. Yeah, yeah and we I had, think Clarence Holloman was on the bill. Clarence Holloman, yep. and then on the record we had Snooks Eaglin and mm -hmm. uh, you know Floyd Domino and, and Snooks and might have been at that show. Now that I think about it, yeah, but yeah, those were some killer shows. Yeah, so because of that, there, that was my little short period of doing stuff with with Blacktop, and then of course with Anson, uh, we did a couple of uh, Anson and Sam records that weren't Anson Funderburg and the Rocket records. Right. They right. were side projects, yeah, and they, they were on Blacktop. So um, the, the the first Anson and Sam re record on Blacktop, My Love Is Here To Stay, mm -hmm. was you, Anson Funderburg on guitar, Doug Reinick on keys. I cannot remember the bass player's name. I know he played with Room Full of Blues, but I can't think of his name Was either. it McLeod? I think it was. Yeah. Rory McLeod. Rory McLeod. Yeah. And then Sam Myers singing and blowing harp. You playing drums, that album, 1984, floored me. And your drumming in particular really stood out. And I said to myself, in the back of my mind, I said, this is a guy I would love to be able to play with someday. So fortunately, we were able to team up in 2010. I think we started doing tours together right. we did. with, with RW. Right. 
And uh, we've been playing off and on since then. And five years in Golden State Lone Star with Anson and, and little Charlie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So three records, well, two records. And uh, I think I did another record with Charlie on it with the little Walter, remembering mm -hmm. little Walter record. But um, so back to uh, your time. Your time in Austin uh, after Marsha, that was Asleep at the Wheel after that? Asleep at the Wheel uh, after Marsha. Um, I had an offer uh, to join them and I, I took it. Uh, and because of them, you know, like with Marsha, being in New Orleans and in Louisiana uh, and being around the meters and all those people, I learned firsthand how to play second line stuff and everything. And it's like with with Omar's where I was right there with all the blues people, you right. know, opening up or, or you know, meeting them. Uh, and then with the Sleep at the Wheel, it was the same thing. It was the timing was great, and I learned how to play Western Swing because a lot of the uh, Bob Wilson's Texas Playboys guys were still alive, and we we did a lot of touring back then with Willie Nelson, and um, and of course Willie was good friends with Bob. Wills yeah. and wow. those guys. So we, we would do these tours where we'd bring out the guys that were still alive, which were a lot of them were back then. Out on the road, we'd do a special segment and uh, they would get up individually and then toward the end, everybody would be out there. But the original drummer for Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys was Smokey Dacus and he's considered the first country drummer. He wow. put the backbeat to so people could dance because they That's played, amazing. you know, ballrooms, you yeah. know, like Kane's Ballroom. That was their home, right, home base. Right, right. And what he would do, what he told me, so that the dancers could hear a more defined beat, he would uh, beat on his for real loud on his case. He sat on his wow. trap case and would beat on two and four. That's amazing. On that, that is wild. And put the back beat to it because the stereo was too soft. Yeah. And so he had to hit on that too. That is so, so he wild. put the backbeat to yeah. country. And back then, I am assuming there was nothing was mic except for the vocal, right? No, you know, you go into, yeah, exactly. You go into the old dance halls uh, in Texas, which there's still about half of them still around, about 70, 80 dance halls around Texas. And you walk in and halfway down the hall before you get to the bandstand, usually you'll see a four by eight foot sheet of plywood with a 10 or 12 inch speaker in it. And that was the PA system. That's amazing. With cables running up yeah. to, all the way up to the stage. But uh, playing with Sleep at the Wheel, uh, and that was a hard working band. You know, the first year I was with them, we did 300 dates. Wow. You know. And, that is hardcore. But And it was a great band. I mean, Ray's always had really good bands. Yeah. And the band, particularly at the time that I joined, uh, Chris O'Connell had come back. Right. And uh, who was the original singer. Who and lives it, around here now. Yep, yeah. she does. And then uh, we we had, for a time, we had Junior Brown playing, right, playing right. with and us. And that's how you hooked up with him. Yep. Yeah. And we had Wally Murphy on steel, who is, uh, I, I'll say this, he's thought of as the fastest steel player in the in the world. Wow. I mean, he used to do like Flight of the Bumblebee and stuff just, just to blow people's <laughs> minds. And stuff. But he's in the, uh, you know, they have the uh, uh, Steel Guitar uh, Hall of Fame Museum is up in St. Louis and they have their big convention every year. And with the wheel, I got to play it twice. Wow. And all the great steel players there, Buddy Emmons, I mean, and yeah. just honoring Jimmy Day, all these yeah. great, great old timers are there. And, but, you know, going back to the wheel playing with the, the Bob Wills guys, I really learned how to play it properly, where I really 
learn how to use brushes. Right. Yeah. I was going to say power. one of the, one of the things that really is a defining feature that you have is being appropriate to each genre of music. You know, if you're playing blues, you're playing it the way it's supposed to sound. If you're playing country or 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 swing, western swing, you're playing it the way it's supposed to sound. Well, I had good. But you're playing it. You're you're playing it your own way. Right. But, and that's what that's what's so unusual, is for somebody to be able to play it in their own way, but at the same time authentically, and that's a very unusual. Well, it's you know, feature. I so think. many different things have led to. I'll say the last twenty five years, I really have defined my style, and and keep refining it, but you really need. To I mean, I feel real fortunate to be around all the players I have in the different genres and get to see it up close and personal. Because mm -hmm. standing right outside the stage and watching somebody play it, oh yeah, it's so powerful. Yeah, it is. It's it very, is. very it's a powerful. total learning experience. Yeah, and, yeah. and especially yeah. I guess it is like that with all instruments. But mm -hmm. I mean, for a drummer, because you can hear it and hear it, and you're going, "How's he doing that?" And then right. when you see him and the, the mechanics and the sticking, right. even as simple as it is, and then I would have to figure out how to do it because I play backwards and wrong. <laughs> so, you know, so so because of that, yeah. it has my own interpretation. Right. And if you think about George Raines and Frosty and Frank Christina, we're all lefties on a right-hand right. set, and we all got to be around wow. each other. That's so interesting. So we all helped each other kind of do this constantly. That's really interesting. And we're able yeah. to sit on each other's set, but it was so watching each other. Yeah. And you go, oh, that's how he does that's it. That's so wild that yeah. all four of you guys and we were, were, around were each there. Other for, yeah, you know, that's so wild. Years, so. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So now Fran is, Fran Christina is, is somebody that's, now was he in the wheel before you? Yeah, he, way before me. He, uh, roomful. The wheel and then T-Burst. That's right. I think that's yeah. the way it went. You were with the wheel for what, a couple of years? Uh, not quite two years. Okay. And, you know, the the other thing, I'm going to interject this, uh, as years went by, I never burned a bridge right. with any of these bands. And because of that, as years have gone by, I mean, I've over the years, I've gotten calls to fill in for the wheel's drummer and right. raise real picky about drummers. Yeah. Uh, and... There was only a couple of us. He wouldn't let his drummer take the time off if it was a wedding, a funeral, whatever it was, unless he could get one of just a couple of us. Right. Because right. it's so defined. I can understand that. You know, particularly with that, that music. Yeah, it's, I understand can, that. It makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, it's, so I was uh, with them. And then I, I left to get off the road uh, from the wheel in 85 and because I had uh, a newborn at the house and a five-year-old. And right. so I wanted to, to get home and get into the local scene, and then I, I took a day job. Uh, I was an electrical maintenance guy at Dillard's department store. Wow. And did that. But, but you were playing gigs the whole time. But yeah. only yeah. six weeks went by, and I got a call, kind of once-in-a-lifetime call from Mason Ruffner. Right, to, right, right. To, so I... Uh, he got asked by Jimmy Page. Uh, Jimmy had a new band with Paul Rogers called The Firm. And not by management, not by the record label, but Jimmy called Mason, wanted him to open up his tour because they had become friends in New Orleans. Wow. Because, you know, that had, is right, because he had the gig. The yeah, bar. that's right, the absinthe bar. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Right, and so that's where they met, and they became wow. friends. 
That is so you know, wild. And with, with Jim, and Jimmy and I became really good friends. So anyway, I ended up doing that tour, and Mason had asked me about a bass player. You know, there's something you were talking about earlier about how, uh, you know, we were talking about, oh, you can't do this gig in Nashville because you're too old or, you right, know, because right, it's right, the right. image thing. Well, Mason's album was taken off, and he had a, a real high-profile management group, and uh, a bass player that I'd recommended to do the tour, because Mason had asked me to find a bass player I was comfortable with to do this tour, and I told him John Bondell, who was a monster, who had played on Warner Fingers records and right, stuff, and right. was a great trombone player, Yeah, but they didn't like the way he looked. Wow. So we got Sarah Brown. That's so bizarre. And so... Yeah. We went out and gallivanting around. You know, we were playing the hole in the wall across the University of Texas on right. a Tuesday night in front of 40 people. And then by Friday, we were playing the Omni in Atlanta in front of 18,000. So, and that's the way it went for the next, Jeez. you know, throughout the summer, next yeah. whatever it was. Crazy. It came four or five yeah. months. That's and, crazy. And you know, the great thing about it, it was a great experience, and I got to be a rock star f for a moment. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I had the highest respect for both those guys, uh, Paul Rogers and Jimmy Page. Right. And they were so nice to us on the road. And, you know, we were we were in RV traveling and staying right. in whatever town we were playing in. But those guys would always fly in and out on a, a private jet right. from a hub city. Right. But when we would play that city, Jimmy would usually call my room, get my room number, and want me to go with him down one of the clubs because he huh. wanted a shuffling drummer to go with him. Oh, and wow. we become good That's friends. That's cool. That's cool. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, kept the friendship up yeah. for quite a few years. I just kind of lost contact with him the last 15 years. But right. for a lot of years, we That's nice. Touch. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So did you ever do a, 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 a like a hub city tour where you were flying out? With Hal, like for example, yeah, Hal with, with Hal, yeah, because we, you know, how when I was playing with Hal Ketchum, uh, we moved up the ladder pretty quick, uh, and within a couple years, we had a full crew with a couple buses, and then on the biggest year for Hal, we'd be on the road, but we'd get a Learjet to fly halfway across the country to a festival that day, and then fly back right. to meet the the band, and so we did that one summer. Until mm -hmm. we had a little accident in our plane, ran it off the uh, the end of the runway and put the Yikes. front landing gear into the mud and pouring down rain. Oh my but God! But I won't talk anymore yeah. about that. <laughs> well, I mean, you were running down a couple of the really, you know, the bad bus accidents you were in. Yeah, it's bad one. Pretty, had a, pretty horrific. Head on one with when I was with Delbert. Yeah. And uh, and then had a really bad one with Hal Ketchum. So, right. So I've been in a plane wreck, yeah. two bus wrecks. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. you hit a deer. Yeah, and then we hit a deer. Yeah, right. That was the tour that took me out for about a year, I think. And and I've said this before when when we did the one on the on road the road dog episode, you know, is that that you're traveling and it doesn't matter if you're in a van, a tour bus, a plane, your risks of of getting in an accident or having some kind of bad juju come down increase every year as you've been out there. Absolutely. And the yeah. more you're out on the road, the more your your odds increase. And it's it's a very, it's kind of a disconcerting way to get through life, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, because we, I mean, we, there's been a lot of musicians we've lost. That have died yeah. in, in accidents, yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking about W.C. Clark or, or uh, yeah, Willie, Jimmy Johnson. Yeah, Willie's had a couple bad wrecks. Has he? Yeah, Willie Johnson yeah. had a couple of really See, bad wrecks. I didn't wrecks. know that. Yeah. Yeah. Tour bus wrecks. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a very weird, it's a weird existence, I guess I would say. Yeah. You know, and I mean, we've been off the road for the last, you know, year and a half here, and, and it's kind of like, I'm, I'm really looking forward to playing, you know, like yeah. these gigs coming up, and it's like, at the same time, the idea of going back out on the road and doing month-long tours is kind of like, it's a hard prospect at this point for me. Well, I think... At this point, we all need to kind of, and I know we're in agreement, just kind of wait and see. Yeah, wait and wait see and what see. happens. There's no hurry. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I was saying the other day, if it all stopped right now, uh, except for the re recording aspect of it, I would be okay with it. Yeah, that's you know, kind of where I, I got to. I want to be, yeah. be able to record yeah. until I can no longer play. But, uh, right. uh, but the touring is, I'm sure both of us, is deep. And you know, I went on my first tour when I was 15. Wow. Uh, down to Florida, yeah, you know, and uh, yeah. See, you're you're way ahead of me. <laughs> but uh, you know, and I'm, I was I'm touring lucky. with my thumb. That's about. <laughs> yeah, that that's age. another thing. Great thing about my parents is they allowed me to do that. And my parents would take us to the interstate about 20 miles from my house, and would drop us off, and we would hitchhike all the way up to Allentown, Pennsylvania. I did this three years in a row. Wow. And then we'd take the bus into New York, have our tickets in advance. And we go all the great jazz shows. That's you know, I got amazing. to see Mingus and Miles. I mean, everybody. Yeah, that's incredible. And my, yeah. and then we do the same thing coming back, and you know, I call my parents, and they come pick us up. Yeah. But they were cool like that. Yeah. And it's that's, back, that's and it was a tail end yeah. when you could do that. Right. And and feel safe. I mean, one night we were picked up by the police, and they took us to the uh, house in this little bitty town somewhere up in Virginia. It's outside of Roanoke, and they called my dad, and they put us up for the night, and they got us back out to the highway the next day. It was wow. all good. Yeah. yeah, I hitchhiked to the Monterey Jazz Festival the first time uh, when I was about sixteen. Yeah. I don't recommend it these days for anybody. No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. So another great story I wanted you to tell people is the uh, uh, Tiny Tim in nineteen seventy-eight. Okay. <laughs> well, I, when I was when I moved out, no to, other drummers I know of can say they play with Tiny Tim. Well, when I moved uh, out to California, I played uh, first band I played with. Uh, it's a hit and run swing band, and we were kind of on the coattails of Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks, but we were just kind of following their their path, and we got really good and we were real popular on the Central Coast and, and in L.A. and. Uh, and but we played in Rome, and one of the clubs there uh, had Tiny Tim coming in, and they hired us to back up, uh, to open up for Tiny, and they hired me and the bass player to play with Tiny and his keyboard player. And at the time, uh, Tiny was living down in Florida, and so he huh. came up from Florida, was doing a little southern tour, and so we played with him and. I'd seen him on Johnny Carson. Of course, you know, yeah, he got, he got married, married on there, yeah, and, and so. I was kind of in awe, and he was yeah. bigger in life. You know, yeah. I mean, he was a big man, and yeah. had, you know, the long hair, yeah. and very soft-spoken on stage, but that, not off stage. Really? Oh yeah, he, he didn't talk like that off stage. But Interesting. Yeah. So, anyway, at the end of the night, uh, 
tiny and the keyboard player went back in the office to get paid. Did he talk he, like this? No, he didn't talk like that. <laughs> but he said, I'll, I'll be right with you. And so me and Byron you know, loaded up our equipment from then, right. hit and run swing band in the van. And we sat in there for about a half hour. So about 45 minutes had actually gone by. So I went and knocked on the door, office door and the owner opened it up. And he said, can I help you? I said, uh, he said, oh, great show, by the way, you know, something like that. And I said, can I help you? I said, yeah, I uh, need to talk to Tiny. He needs to pay me. And our bass player said, oh, he left about 15, 20 minutes ago. He <laughs> went out the back door. And he'd signed me uh, a couple pictures. He had autographed for me and stuff. And I just tore them up right there. So, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wish I had done that. And then yeah, that, the money you could have made. Yeah, you know, could have made more than than the exactly, gig probably. You no, know, <laughs> the thing is, and back then you actually had cameras, and, and right. so I had to get film developed and had a bunch of pictures of us, and right. I tore them all up <laughs> because I was so upset about how dare him. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was a, it was a learning experience because right. he had this professionalism that clicked on when he went on stage. Interesting. You know, and that that was something that, uh, you know, me and Byron have talked about that since, that it really, it made you click into another gear. And he right. had that, him and the That's keyboard interesting. player. Wow. So not really knowing his stuff at all, what he was going to do, it was easy to follow because yeah. he had command. Right. You know? Yeah. I've, I've always been really impressed. I remember one time watching James Cotton do a gig with Steve Freund mm -hmm. where I, I picked up on just, the abilities of a band leader being able to cue musicians on the spot and make them, you know, make them sound like a band that he's worked with a million times. Yeah. That's a true talent. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, would, I have to say, and I've said this many times, the best guy I've ever been on stage with that can direct a band while he's counting the song off and pointing and stuff and it all makes sense is Delbert McClinton. Okay, let's talk about him. Delbert. Yeah, because uh, you worked with him twice. I worked with him twice. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't get fired either time. Right. But it was kind of a mutual understanding, you know. And he always took care of me when I left. Uh, but I, first time I played with him, Nick Conley got me in the band. Who Nick and I, uh, I met him in Santa Barbara's keyboard player, played in. The, I don't know if you remember this band, Spliff. They were the big. I have West heard of Coast that band. reggae band. Yeah, I have back heard of that band. Back in the 70s. Wow. And so both you and Anson were in reggae bands. No, Anson was. Anson oh, yeah, that's was right. In a, that's yeah, right. he, he was, was in a reggae band. Yeah. And so so I knew Nick from California, and Nick moved out to Texas a year after I did and actually lived in my house for six weeks till he could find a place. Uh, him and his family, young family, stayed there while I was on the road with Omar. So it, down the road, Nick ended up playing. He was actually the first keyboard player with Stevie. Wow. Yeah. I did and, not and he know he played that. around town. Too you know, much. him and Danny were kind of like uh, ghost members in that band. Right. Danny Freeman. Yeah. And, and I knew Danny was because uh, yeah, he, he was Chambers. in the Cobras, right? Yeah. And Danny, Danny, yeah. Danny and Stevie were in the Cobras. Right. You know? But right. he was a really great piano player and actually toured quite a bit with the T-Birds early on wow. as a keyboard player. But anyway, so Nick was playing with Delbert. And they were losing their drummer. It was right after Delbert did that great live album from Austin City Limits, and uh, which is a wonder, still a wonderful record. And uh, the drummer left, and so I got a shot at it. And uh, actually, the, my rehearsal was in a studio, and or my audition slash rehearsal, we actually did a uh, Schlotsky's commercial. 
<laughs> sandwich commercial. The deli, yeah, yeah right, we, right. We did a right. sandwich commercial. I love that. And place. that was my audition, basically. Wow. Basically, that's, that's, that's interesting. Did. And you know, Delbert, I learned so much from from Delbert, and he was, uh, you know, Delbert could could be tough, but he was never like that with me. Yeah. We we uh, we hit it off, and because he was known to be one of those band leaders that's hard on drummers. Right. And. Uh, and he was fine. He was. We got along great, and I learned so much from him. And then it was, uh, you know, it was just time to move on. But uh, Al Ketchum needed a drummer, and a mutual friend of ours uh, called me up, and so I went and played. Actually, I think it was the day before Christmas, first time I played with him, and it went really well. So I started playing with him when he needed a drummer, because a lot of times he did stuff without drummer, because he was oh, doing okay. more, you know, more of the folk. Singer-songwriter? Yes, singer-songwriter stuff. And so well, when Hal went to Nashville, he got a writer's deal first, and had written some songs that, that uh, artists had picked up, and then he got a uh, artist deal. So they made a record, uh, Small Town Saturday Night, they made a record, and then out of the blue, after not talking to him for years, he called me up and said, Hey, I want you to be in my band. I've got this album coming out, and I want to use my Texas guys. Uh, Nashville wants me to use these guys up here, but I'll, if I can get you and, and Keith and Scotty, I want to use you guys. Yeah. And we may add one guy from up here, but I want that. that I want sound. it. Yeah, I don't want yeah. it to be you know homogenized and just right. you know filtered and just you know just be stock stuff. Out because you guys play my stuff good. So they watch just like a hawk for about the first six months. Hmm. when uh, And we went out on the road when Hal's single broke top 40. And uh, when it got up to uh, number one, they left us alone. <laughs> <laughs> and we were good to go. Yeah. And so yeah. then we, we moved over to Nashville. We all, we all relocated over to Nashville to be, because as you know, it's just easier to tour. Sure. You know, Nashville and Memphis, it's a great location as a tour because right. you can go play you power, power weekends yeah. on 30 something right. states and that's go right. home. That's right. That's you right. Know, so it's just easier. Yeah. I mean, from Texas, it takes a day to get out of the damn state. Absolutely. So yeah. it's just, and it just seemed like the right thing to do. And then things just kind of kept going. And we had, it was a good run for me because. Now that uh, was seven years? Is that what it was? Uh, it was uh, not quite five. Not quite just, five. But okay. we had 14 top 10 hits. Wow. You know, and so five million records. And wow. It was, uh, and I really, by then, from, from learning from my mistakes of not paying attention to what was going on in other bands, uh, I really paid attention and took it in because it was really the big time. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just yeah. a tour doing big right. time stuff. It was, right. I was part of it. And it was, you know, the band, as a band was critically acclaimed because we had a sound. Right. And I always considered us, even though we were four-piece, I always, for a long time too, we had a keyboard. So we were four-piece. Our fifth instrument were the vocals because uh, Scotty and Keith, bass player, guitar player, sang incredible, they were incredible singers. And with Hal, their voices were special. So that was our fifth instrument. Yeah. And wow. we used it. And we became a very powerful unit because Hal would write a song in the hotel room, and then we get on the bus the next morning, bus call, and he'd have the guys break out the guitars, and they'd run it down and tweak it, and then we get to the next town, go in to do a sound check, go run it down and play it that night in front of 5,000 people. That's incredible. That's how much confidence yeah, we had. That's serious confidence. You know? And yeah. so he relied on 
on the on us a lot, and he was, uh, you know, just it was great it, for a long time. Yeah. And um, I have to kind of watch what I say here. Well, no, I mean, I mean, I know, I know, he just recently passed. Yeah, he recently yeah. passed, and yeah. and we buried the hatchet, but. You know, with with a lot of my, uh, he had his demons and stuff. And yeah. when you know when he got serious, he quit drinking and mm -hmm. he was quit for almost five years. Mm -hmm. And then when he showed up my hotel room, we may have to edit this out. I showed up my hotel room in in London, knocked on the door, and out of respect, none of us drank. Mm -hmm. And what drinking did go on would be maybe a nightcap or something. Right. I mean, we all curved our drinking because right. respect for him. What was going yeah. on? And, and the big picture. And he knocked uh, on the door and opened the door and he had a bottle of champagne and two glasses. And I thought to myself, it's over. Yeah. I did, I wow. really did. Wow. And then, and we were like blood brothers. And when I yeah. uh, finally approached him about it, cause things started to get kind of wild and you know, we were, we were like a machine as far as timing and you know be here be here there all that started going away that sloppiness wow. started coming in yeah. and I finally went to him and said something to him about it and uh, he didn't want to hear it yeah he basically fired me wow but the reason he he finally gave me head management fired me but the when I finally did talk to him a week or so later after that went down and I was heartbroken from it I bet. Uh, and uh, I finally talked to him. He finally answered the phone, and he gave me the best answer I ever heard for being fired. He said, I, I said, so how? What's going on? He said, well, you're fired. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, Wes, every time I, I look back at you, you look like you're possessed by the spirit of Gene Krupa. <laughs> and I went, well, thank you. <laughs> that is a compliment. But what, yeah, what happened, because when you bring you know, the alcohol and the drugs back yeah. in, things get twisted in your yeah. head. And Hal has always been great with his fans and stuff. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, when he started back doing that nonsense, when people come up and say, oh, your band's great, or particularly, oh, your drummer's phenomenal, he didn't, he didn't want to hear it. it. No, that's typical. So typical. that's because of, of, the, uh, Very typical. of that stuff. So yeah. anyway, so he, he, uh, he let me go. And then, one a month later, Delbert called me up. And I was and back, back with in. Back yeah, in with wow. Delbert. So... Yeah. You know, it, it's just... It You've had a lot of very good luck in terms of landing on your feet. Yeah. You know, in you know, and all I, these and, situations. You know, like earlier I was telling you, when I got a call to join Dixie Chicks, I turned it down because I was with Delbert because you never leave a band for another band unless you truly have their blessings or, right. or you take it. Like, right. like, you know, when I left Delbert's band the first time, the way I left was we were uh, backstage at a club in Copenhagen and a couple guys from uh, um, Polygram Records came backstage, and I was talking to Delbert and his wife, and they come right up, and they were, you know, said, "Oh, it's a great show, blah blah blah," and they wanted to talk to me. Said, "We'd like to offer you a, a contract as a staff drummer for uh, Polygram Scandinavia." Wow! And Delbert and Wendy were right there, and I thought it was just perfect, and I just kind of looked at them. Del Delbert said, "You better take that." Wow, that's so, smart. So I did, yeah, and smart. basically what I was doing was me, me and Frosty, for that year, either he'd be drumming or I'd be drumming. We would, we would uh, Barry Frost, Frosty played with Lee Michaels, just great, yeah, great famous drummer, drummer. Famous drummer. And, and had played with Delbert years before I did, and uh, had left, and enough time had gone by, he felt comfortable coming in and playing a tour, and then 
have a month off and then I come in and do a tour. Right. So we worked it out between me and him. Yeah. It was, everything's covered. And then it got to where I couldn't be around as much. And so Frosty became a drummer and I permanently left. Right. But that's how right. the transition went. Yeah. The other, the other uh, thing I wanted to get into is just your, uh, your time around a lot of the singer-songwriters in Austin, like uh, Tish... Tish Hinosa. I know. I don't pronounce her name well. Tish Hinosa. Hinosa, who, who I know Gary Primich was also in the band at the mm -hmm. same time, I think. Harmonica player, friend of mine. And then uh, the other one is Jimmy Dale Gilmore. Yeah. And a lot of the people that he played with, Stephen Bruton right. was another friend of yours. Joe Ely and yeah, Butch Joe Hancock, Ely. and they were right. runners of Flatlanders. The Flatlanders, yeah. Well, you know, that happened because uh, when I decided to get off the road, and then but the Mason gig came up, so I did that. So after that was done, then I got off the road, and I got my job, which I had just started at Dillard's as an electrical maintenance guy. They took me back because they needed someone. And, uh, and I so... I started playing with a lot of the uh, singer-songwriters around town. Yeah. And it, that was another incredible experience for me, you know, to to really tune in to, you know, because they're very, um, singer, those singer-songwriters are very particular. Right. You know, the subtleties are so important to them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and the lyrics and also with the music behind it. Yeah. It's very important for and them. And you're saying you saw Towns Van Zandt? Passed out under a well, I met a lot. I mean, I met Jerry <laughs> Jeff Walker. Him, most of those guys. Usually, when I met them, were passed out underneath the table. Right, you know? right, right. And then down the road. How about you know? Blaze? What was Blaze? His? Blaze Foley. Yeah. Did you know him? I knew. Yeah. Blaze actually, and his band was only one other guy, the Eager Beaver Valley Boy. <laughs> that was his band. One other guy. <laughs> they went with Paul in the van with Omar, and I think we did two tours together where we had Blaze. Really, and his buddy open up. But my watering hole was, uh, my local watering hole where I went to drink was the Austin Outhouse. Okay. Which is made famous in the movie about Blaze Foley. Right. And, but that was that just movie. literally yeah. blocks away from where I live. So that's right. where I, I first saw a lot of people, a lot of the writers. Well, what was your take on the film? Uh, it was... About Blaze. I left there kind of I thought it was done really well. I thought Charlie Sexton was great in it. I, I mean, I thought the acting was wonderful, and I thought it was pretty true to form. But it just kind of brought back memories, and it, it was it was depressing. Yeah, it was kind of depressing. It was a heavy yeah. movie. The, the ending was very depressing. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. the Blaze that I knew, and, and it portrayed it a lot in the movie, he was very upbeat, very up. Was he? Oh, yeah. No. Well, you know, with the songwriters, what it did was really help hone my skills recording uh, to a, a, another level. But even though I was recording, oh, anywhere from three to five records with different artists a year with those people, it, it was it was just totally different. And it just upped my game. I became a much better drummer and really became, started becoming a studio drummer. You know, right. And I understand the concept, because uh, like with Jimmy Dale Gilmore, I mean, the three Producer, I did three records with him uh, in a row over about a five-year period, and we had uh, Joe Ely produced one, uh, Stephen Bruton produced one, who was a longtime guitar player with Chris Christopherson, right? You know, and uh, and then uh, Emery Gordy Jr., which was that when I went in the studio to do my five songs with Jimmy in in uh, Nashville, 
That, I called it my Elvis day because he had Glendy Harden there and an Emory where he played bass. Wow. And, and, you know, it was kind of the Elvis. And it was, that's we, heavy. we knocked the songs out just like that. Yeah, And that's then heavy. the other two hours, uh, or other four hours probably, because I think we spent about two hours out of a six-hour session recording and the rest, Elvis stories. Wow. So, but, Crazy. But, you know, working with guys like that, producers at that level, they really... They know what they want. They know how to talk to you. They know how to get it out of you. Right. You know. Right. And I was going to say, you know, any anyone doing sessions in Nashville, you you can't be a slouch. You've got to be a well, serious, serious. You know, the other thing about uh, a guy that has been there, uh, key timing for me, is um, the way I got to sleep at the wheel was through Johnny Gimble, the fiddle player. Okay. Right. And the way that happened was when I went down to do all. The audition. I went into the office. It was just the bass player, and and Ray. You know, and I thought it's going to be the whole band there, right? Right. And it's just us two. And I'm going, oh my God! And I'm sitting up my drums, and we get ready to play. And in walks Johnny Gimble. He just came by the office, and Ray said, "Pull out your fiddle." So we played a couple of songs, and Johnny looked at Ray and said, "Hire him." Wow. And so that's how I got. Yeah. It. This it, sounds like a like a very similar story. Uh, Demar. The drummer yeah. Demar played with Little Richard, Richard for 20 yeah, years. Exactly. And he had a very similar story about uh, Richard taking him to a club of Roy Gaines, the guitar player. Right. And that Roy and Richard got on stage and said, come on up here and play. And they started just playing blues for like three hours. Mm. And, and that was goes, his real audition. You got the gig. Yeah, that was his audition. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting yeah. how people, a lot of times they will, they will kind of put you in a very comfortable situation where it's not a stress thing. Right, it's, it's just being gonna, relaxed. Right, and, and so do. so when I moved to Nashville, uh, when I was flying up up to Nashville to look for a house, I happened to be right across the aisle from Johnny Gimble. Wow! And there was a seat open next to me, so he moved over and we talked. And I told him what was going on. He was happy I was going to be playing, you know, moving up there playing with Hal. He said, "Are you interested in doing some studio work?" And I said, "Well, yeah." He said. Well, I'm going to call a buddy of mine. Here's his number. He'd give me a couple of weeks and then call him. Well, I didn't have to wait. The guy called me. And the way it works in Nashville, you really do. As they say, uh, you got to have some uh, talents are given, but then you have to be on time and you have to be really nice. Wow. And I heard that out of Johnny's mouth. They said, wow. That's, he said they used to have a guy out of tune. Somebody was his name, guitar player, <laughs> but but he was the, the guy that was always there at the studio, yeah. and he he was an okay player, but yeah. he he was the nicest guy in the world. Nobody could fire him because he was so nice <laughs> and always on time. <laughs> they couldn't fire him. So anyway, through Johnny, yeah. he got me got me in the door because they have a list. Because in Nashville, you have your road players and you have your studio players, and. There's not a whole lot of uh, people that do both because you have to be on call, basically. Wow. If they call yeah. you and you don't answer, you don't respond, right. they'll get somebody else. And right. I've seen the list of one to 50 players down the list of who they're going to call and stuff. And I saw that when I got to um, MCA Studios, a publishing company where they do all their demos, I, I saw the list of players and I'm going, why am I here? <laughs> you know, but that's got to be gratifying. But the thing yeah. is, so when I'd be off the road from Howe, I could call down there and say I'm available because it wasn't making records. It was the next process of getting the song from the songwriter from their rough demo in 
to put a band around that song and to keep the integrity of the song in place, but, but don't spend a lot of time on it, but it, the things that are important right. and, and with a simple formula to present it to the artist. So it's it, a demo. It's a demo yeah. for Doing the, demos. going yeah. to the artist. Interesting. And so, and that was an incredible experience. And that's where I really became a, a good in the studio and quick. Yeah. Because I learned how to be quick with those guys. Yeah, I bet you and, did. You know, you, you got to yeah. be like two steps ahead as a guy. Yeah. Wow. So we're going to take a little break right here, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to play something for you live in the studio. Absolutely. Absolutely. 